Luke chapter 7, open your Bibles there. We're going to begin there and um, see how far we get today. Probably go through about verse 10. We are going to see one of the most unique occurrences in the Bible today that involves a Roman centurion, a Roman centurion. Now remember, we uh, finished chapter 6, and now we're going into chapter 7. So let me give you some intro information, we'll dive right into the text. And now that Jesus has completed the Sermon on the Plain, he will return to the city of Capernaum, return there, and begin his healing ministry again. The majority of chapter 6 was instructive in nature as he gave his followers the foundational theology that would be required to build their life. Now it was time to return to the city of Capernaum and begin to engage the community again with the life-changing gospel. So chapter 7 and 8, as we begin to move through these chapters, we'll take a couple of weeks out for Christmas Uh, there, but when we get back, we'll be going through chapter 7 and 8, continue through Luke, and what you will see is an increase of local encounters. Jesus travels to multiple different places as his preaching and healing ministry are back in action. Jesus will go back into the city of Capernaum in the initial verses of chapter 7, then to a place called Nain, and then Gerasa. We will again see personal names, like we did in the opening chapters. John the Baptist, Simon the Pharisee, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Colton. (laughs) Just checking to see if y'all paying attention. Just checking, just checking. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Susanna, and Jairus. Y'all caught that. That was the majority of the congregation laughing. I'm impressed. You really do listen. Wow, man, this is great. We will also explore some unnamed but unforgettable encounters. The sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet, the demoniac among the tombs, and the desperate woman with the hemorrhage. The primary centerpiece of these encounters, and you'll see this today, faith and salvation. Nowhere else in the Gospel of Luke do we see these terms appear so often as in these two chapters you're about to see over the next several weeks. We also see something very interesting. It is very clear that Luke applies prophetic typology to portray Jesus as Elijah and Elisha. And he does this to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel and that the history of Israel is the necessary foundation by which to understand Jesus. So as we will see this morning, we will see a beautiful example of Christ's final admonition from chapter 6. He said that you would know a tree by the type of fruit they bear, and a good tree bears what kind of fruit? And a bad tree bears what kind of fruit? Bad fruit. And then he said right before this chapter closed and he came down from the mountain, He said, the wise man is the one that hears my words and does them. The wise man is the one that digs down deep and builds his foundation on the rock. And the rock is Jesus. So that when that storm comes, and that storm is coming, as we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Kentucky, amen? When that storm comes, then your house will be immovable and indestructible because it was built on the rock, the foundation of the rock, and not the sand, or no foundation at all. 
And so lo and behold, now he comes down from the mountain after he has given all these admonitions and someone comes to him for help. A very unlikely person comes to Jesus for help. Verse one, chapter seven. After he had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy, meaning the centurion, to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus, verse six says, just very simply, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, this would be the second group of people that he sends to Jesus, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be what? Healed. For I too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and what does he do? He does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant what? Well. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Amen. Golly. So let's look at these first few verses. So a Gentile centurion requests help from Jesus. Simply put, these first few verses, that, that is what Luke is telling us. He is telling us that once Jesus comes down from the mountain, this major transition, he travels from the base of the undisclosed mountain back into the city of Capernaum. And we have no idea the location of the mountain. We have no idea how long of a walk this would have been. All we know is that he had gone to the mountain to pray to his father. He had chosen his 12 disciples. He taught them a deep and radically sacrificial and loving worldview and now returns into the city to pick up where he left off, preaching, teaching, and healing with authority. Then we hear someone described in the text, and I don't know about you, but it caught me completely off guard. A centurion. Now a centurion. That word is very unique and should immediately take your mind to one place. And what place would that be on the map? Rome. And more specifically, the Roman army. So as we navigate the pages and the verses and the words of scripture, we must ask these questions of ourselves to build up the tension in the text that God intends to be there. You can't do that unless you dig and ask these questions. So were the Jews and Rome kind to each other? Were they buddies? No, they were not. 
At this time, Israel was under occupation by one of the greatest military forces the world has ever known, Rome. Rome had forced Israel into submission militarily, and as we know, because we have the Bible, Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Jerusalem at the time of Christ's ministry, would be the one to order Christ's execution. This army... This centurion, this Roman centurion is now reaching out to Jesus Christ for help. So what was a centurion? That question in your mind? I hope it is because I'm about to tell you. He was a principal officer in the Roman army and he was responsible for the command of guess how many? A hundred, very good, metric system. One of 60 such officers in the Roman legion of approximately 6,000. He would have been ranked in between a decurion, which is 10 soldiers, and a kiliarch, which is 1,000 soldiers. And he was what we might call an army captain, although based on the scriptures, he was paid way more than an army captain. Way more. Centurions were typically men of good reputation and the scripture testifies to several instances of centurions' favorable response to Christ. You probably remember these. At the crucifixion, a centurion looked up at Jesus and said what? Surely this is the Son of God. A centurion reported to Pilate the truth about the body of Christ that it was really dead in Mark 15. And of course, we would, have to, we would have to mention the Gentile Pentecost, which happened at the home of a Roman centurion named who? Cornelius. Cornelius. So he was most definitely a Gentile, but of what nationality, we cannot be sure. He was most likely under the authority of Herod Antipas, which made his interest in Jesus even more suspect. The Herods were known for their wickedness, were they not? Yes. Centurions also earned a significant amount of money. The lowest paid soldier earned approximately 75 denarii. The centurion earned between 3,750 and 7,500. Amen? Must be a centurion. Hallelujah. Just kidding. So this centurion, this Roman military leader, had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Aha. Now we know. There are very few things in our life that will make us as desperate as a sick family member or friend. Amen? Amen. The centurion had a servant that he dearly loved and was highly valued who had become gravely ill and was very near death. The Gospel of Matthew gives a little more information and tells us that he was lying at home paralyzed and suffering terribly. I don't know, I know many of you have, and we've talked about this before, but I don't know if you've ever had a loved one that was bedbound, that was ill, that was terminal. Nothing more could be done. And all you do every day Every day is going to that room, 
and do everything you can to alleviate their suffering and make them comfortable. It is agonizing. I watched my grandmother die slowly like that for months from frontal lobe dementia. As a hospice chaplain, I watched multiple patients over a seven-year period die like that. And it was agonizing. To be able to do nothing. Oh, I prayed for healing multiple times, as we all, you know, you know I believe in that. 100% do I believe in that. 100%. I prayed and prayed and prayed over several, but for whatever reason in the sovereignty of God, never happened. I don't question that for a second. Amen? Not for a second. But there is nothing outside of your own personal pain and your own personal health and your own personal issues. There's nothing that will push you to the point of complete, utter desperation than watching a family member or friend in their last hours struggling to live. And that's where this centurion was. For his servant, may we be reminded, amen? Servant. Not his family member, although they were so close, the text seems to imply they were so close that he considered him a family member, but, but make no, no mistake about it, this was a, a, a servant, or you could go far to say slave. And this Roman centurion loved him. And it was driving him crazy to watch him die. Now, even with all the centurion's power, money, and influence, he could do nothing to help his servant. And I can guarantee you that a centurion in the Roman army during this time had access to resources that other people did not have. And yet, with all those resources, everything had been futile to do anything for his servant. So complete desperation had set in And let me also tell you from personal experience that there is no fertile ground in the hearts of men other than desperation. Desperation is absolutely the most fertile ground for gospel ministry that I know of. To be at the end of yourself, You've exhausted every other opportunity. You've exhausted every other resources there. There is nothing more that you can do other than sit there and watch this happen. Desperation. You're running empty. And at the end of yourself, there is but one place to appeal when you get to that place, and that place is God. And the centurion, we will find out in just a moment, knew enough to know to go there. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Notice when the centurion heard about Jesus. Now, we're about to learn something about Capernaum we have yet to learn. This centurion had heard about Jesus because he obviously, what, lived where? Around Capernaum. I mean, how could one live around Capernaum and have not heard about the amazing preaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ? 
Even the centurion. How could he have not heard about the incredible catch of fish down at the boat docks at the Zebedee family? Amen? Everybody want to know about that. Did you hear about all them fish he caught down there? Jesus, that Jesus guy did that. How could he have not heard about Peter's mother being healed of a fever? How could he have not heard about Matthew, the tax collector, giving up his profitable tax collecting business to follow this strange Nazarene miracle worker preacher? How could he have not heard about hundreds, if not possibly thousands of other healings that have been done by Christ in past weeks around the city? Well, he, he had heard about it. He had probably heard about it multiple times. From, from several different sources, probably from men in his own ranks that knew other people in that area saying, sir, you will not believe what is going on in Capernaum, what this Jesus of Nazareth, what this Jesus is doing and how he is helping people and healing people and healing the sick and this miraculous catch of fish. It is absolutely incredible. The centurion had nowhere else to turn, so he reached out to Christ. So he sent to Jesus elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Now here we have a slight difference in the gospel of Matthew and Luke. Matthew states that the centurion personally came to Jesus while Luke reports that the centurion sent two sets of messengers, the content of what is said and the result, however, matched perfectly. We simply don't know. Perhaps Matthew's account was more of a summary and Luke's, Luke gives us eyewitness detail. But what we do know is that scripture does not contradict itself, amen? So we know that just because we can't figure it out doesn't mean it's not right. That's where I put myself. So the centurion sent to him elders of the Jews to come heal his servant, come here. Now that's really interesting to me. Really interesting that the centurion would take a local group of Jews and ask them to go to Jesus and request him to come heal his servant. So far, as far as my mind can tell me and my knowledge of the text, this is the first time we have seen this. First time. A Roman centurion that has a friendly relationship with local Jews that is good enough to get them to go to Jesus and appeal to him to come heal his servant. Now get your mind around that. Now don't miss this because I did the first few times I read it. The centurion is not suppressing these Jews. He is cooperating with them and helping them and it's proven by the next verse. Verse 4, and when they came to Jesus, they what? Pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he, meaning the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him. And these are the two most just, just incredible, valuable information. He loves our nation, and he is the one that built our... <laughs> How would you like a state senator or a state general to come in here and build you a church? Amen? How about that? That's, I mean, that's, that's what happened. So the centurion is so serious and desperate about this situation that he humbled himself to seek out those beneath him in the hierarchy and social status for help. And what's more, the Jews, it seems, were happy to do it for him. 
This relationship seems very genuine and sincere. They say, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Now, now we know, was he worthy? Was he really worthy? No. That's not what they mean by that. What they mean by that is, is that this guy, this centurion, is not a typical Roman soldier. That's what he means by that. That's what they mean by that. This guy, for whatever reason that we don't really understand, is good to us, loves us, doesn't persecute us, loves our nation. And in fact, not only does he love us, but he built us a synagogue in Capernaum. Wow. He is different. Now, there's no way to know this 100%, but I love thinking about these kind of things, okay? It is certainly within the realm of possibilities that this may have been the very synagogue where Christ had been preaching that was near Peter's house. Hmm. So that Roman centurion's charitable heart and love toward the Jews had unintentionally put him in the perfect position to receive help from God when he needed it the most. Do you see that? God is going to put you in all kind of different positions that you're not going to understand. He's going to put you in all types of different people's lives where you will have an opportunity to do good and you have no idea why. I can promise you that when he built that synagogue, that that Roman centurion had no idea that the servant that he dearly loved later was gonna be sick and dying. He had no idea there was gonna be a a miracle-working Jewish rabbi that was gonna come to Capernaum and do this ministry, the son of God, and be there and be available and willing to come heal his son. So let's continue. And Jesus went with him, them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. What you're about to see here is something that is very difficult to explain by what we have in the text. But this Gentile Roman centurion had grasped of divine authority that the Israelites didn't have that could probably really only been given him by God. So what happens here is is awkward to explain, but, but in my mind, it makes this whole encounter smell authentic, just like a juicy T-bone steak that you just want to devour. Or maybe porter, some of y'all want a porterhouse, right? Okay. Amen, I heard it. 
So at the request of the Jews, Christ accepts the invitation, goes with them toward the centurion's home. As the group gets closer to the centurion's home, some friends of the centurion sent by him meet Jesus and the Jews with another message. And he calls him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. I did not want to presume upon you, but you say the word and he'll be healed. Now, I don't know about you, but the million dollar question for me, when I read this text and what I dug into hard for you and kind of came up wanting is what? What happened? Why the change of heart from sending the Jews to retrieve him and then him coming and then suddenly another wave of friends going and saying, just say it. You don't have to come to my house. Just, just say it. Well, it's impossible to know exactly but I can give you a couple of ideas like I always do. Do you want those ideas or not? I can pass over them. Okay. The Jews said the centurion was worthy, but the centurion does not believe he is. He is a Gentile. Jesus is a Jew. And although the centurion loves the Jewish nation, perhaps... He understands the perceived barriers and does not want to be the source of any conflict for Jesus. He knows that Jesus is his only hope for healing his servant, but at the same time, he knows the social scandal would be huge, so maybe he rethinks the scenario. I don't know. Or maybe he really didn't think that Jesus would come to his house. When word got to him that Jesus had accepted his invitation and was headed that way, he began to realize exactly the magnitude of what he had asked Jesus. The time involved in a personal visit. Jesus having to leave the masses and come specifically to the centurion's home, especially with the amount of ministry that Jesus was involved in. And if there's one thing the centurion understood, it was having to manage hundreds of people that didn't want to be managed, right? So maybe he sincerely thought that he didn't want Jesus to be inconvenienced even though his need was severe. But regardless of the reason why, what the centurion does next is absolutely mind-blowing and yet to be seen in the gospel. Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. <laughs> he realized that it's, it's not necessary for Jesus to come all the way to my house. He can stop right where he is. I can save him the time. He can say the word and he can go about on his way and get back to Capernaum and do what he was doing before I sent that envoy of Jews to him. Lord, you don't have to come to my house. You don't have to see my servant. You don't have to touch my servant. You don't have to put any healing salve on my servant. My servant doesn't have to ingest anything. All you have to do is what? Say the word. Now, here's my question. How? How did he know this? 
We haven't seen this. How did he know this? That is what's so mind-blowing about this encounter. This man was a Gentile with a love for Israel. All he had done is heard about what Jesus was doing. There is no indication in the text that he had seen anything. Word had gotten to him that Jesus was healing people from illnesses and providing miraculous catches of fish and expelling demons from people. And he knew based on what he had what? Heard. That Jesus commanded an authority that was far beyond his, but similar to his. His mind worked it out like this. The chain of command under which he lived resulted in a world of assured outcomes. A soldier or a servant who was ordered to do something did it. The centurion perceives that the presence of Jesus ushers in a similar, though more powerful reality. A word from Jesus would do to the disordered world of sickness and death what a word from a Roman officer does in a disordered and rebellious society. Jesus need only say the word and the servant will be healed. You know, it takes a lot to amaze Jesus. Would you agree with that? <laughs> I mean, how do you amaze the Son of God? I mean, how do you really impress Jesus? Well, this centurion does it. This Gentile military soldier, Jesus is about to say, has more faith than anything he has seen among his own people. Verse nine, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And then those who had been sent returned to the house. They found the servant well. So, 21st century Baptists, do you have the faith of the centurion? Because that man's faith was so strong, his request from Jesus saved his servant. Do you have that kind of faith? Do I have that kind of faith? A Gentile outside of Israel Jesus is amazed at his faith. Close with these two passages. You heard one of them already. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are. And Romans 10, 17, so what comes, how does faith come? What did the Roman centurion, what happened with him? He had heard about all the mighty works of Jesus. When he got in a desperate place, he called for him, stopped him on the way, sent the word, his faith healed his servant. Let us pray. Father, we love you. 
And Lord, I don't mind saying it. I'm intimidated by this story. I am. A Roman soldier, a Roman centurion, a leader in the Roman army that could grasp and understand divine authority. Lord, I pray that as we have heard this story today, this true story of this miraculous healing of the centurion's son, that we would understand that that same power, that same love, that same spirit that healed that servant boy dwells in our hearts today. Father, help us, Lord. Help us to have faith as strong as the centurions. Help us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, as we have a response, we're going to have a little bit longer of a response than normal. The altar will be open. I know that Christmas time is, is upon us, and I know there's a lot of a lot of pain and a lot of different things people go through in the Christmas season. And so we wanted to take this time and open the altar. If you would like to come and pray or have, one of, have me pray with you or uh, Colton pray with you, we will be down front to do so. But would you please stand and enjoy this time of response.
Just below. 